Hello and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute. H.L. Mencken tells us that every election is sort of an advance auction sale on stolen goods. And to the extent that that's true, Republicans did very well at yesterday's auction. The GOP had big wins in federal elections and in state houses, but will that translate into Congress and states moving in a more libertarian direction? I'm joined by David Bowes, Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute and author of the forthcoming book, The Libertarian Mind, and John Samples. He is Vice President and Publisher here at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So uh, just to get started here, if you have any questions for our guests, please use the hashtag CatoConnect, and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible over the course of the next half hour. Uh, but gentlemen, let's start here. This is from CNN regarding uh, exit polling. About 8 in 10 Americans disapprove of how Congress is handling its job. 6 in 10 voters are dissatisfied or angry with both the White House and Republican leaders in Congress. Less than a third of Americans are satisfied with the Obama administration and GOP leaders. This from ABC on what stood out as issues important to voters aside from the economy, which is the number one issue. Uh, 47% of voters who went to the polls yesterday said the federal health care law known as Obamacare went too far. It's a key line of argument uh, for Republicans running for office. Gay marriage, voters split 49 to 48%. Notable, of course, that Americans overall, a majority consistently favor gay marriage for several years. On marijuana, voters nationally split closely on legalizing marijuana for personal use, 49-46, uh, similar to other polls among the general population. There again, uh, the trend is toward the public continuing to favor legal marijuana uh, going forward. So... David Bowes, I ask you this, the economy, healthcare, gay marriage, marijuana, uh, this is not a clear recipe for Republican wins beyond yesterday. Well, it's certainly not, although one of the lessons the Republicans learned was they should stop talking about social issues. Um, it was Democrats who talked about social issues in this election. It didn't work very well for them. Uh, most of their uh, prominent female candidates lost. Uh, their candidates who made the war on women a really big issue lost, but it is notable that it was not the Republicans trying to use issues like abortion, gay marriage, or marijuana as wedge issues. So that tells you that the country has moved significantly on those issues. John Samples? Yeah, I think that really does stand out. And you know, on gay marriage in particular, it's been a decade now because the Bush administration did use it a little bit in 2004, but not overtly. So it's a development that's been coming along for some time. The other thing I would mention is a, a number that I, I think you didn't mention, which was the trust in the federal government is really back at all-time lows. And it hasn't always been the last 20 or 30 years, but it's really uh, near the bottom. And I think the Obama administration sort of feeds into that. But that's a, a very typical kind of thing over time. And it really does say that, in a sense, the attempt to resurrect the federal government as an effective uh, entity has, uh, I think, failed. Well, as uh, Gene Healy points out in his book, uh, The Cult of the Presidency, that distrust of government doesn't necessarily translate into asking the government to do less. Correct. There may still be all kinds of expectations, but you would expect at some point, uh, and I think a lot of progressives believe this, that they need to resurrect some kind of uh, 1960s-style numbers for trust in the federal government if they are to continue the uh, 
welfare state adventure, as it were. All right. If you have any questions for uh, David Bowes and John Samples, please uh, ask them on Twitter using the hashtag CatoConnects, and I'll try to get to as many of those uh, questions as possible. So uh, to you, David, there wasn't a lot of uh, gay marriage uh, issues on the ballot this year. It, the issue itself seems to have largely moved to the judicial branch, that is, courts are making these kinds of determinations. Does that offer Republicans essentially a, an opportunity to sidestep that issue and just not talk about it because they've been so beaten up with that issue lately? Well, that's probably right. And, and it is true that 10 years ago, they were trying to use it, put it on the ballot lots of places. They thought that would bring voters out. Um, the past couple of years, the Supreme Court and then the lower courts have gotten into it. And the striking thing that you saw this year was that as Federal judges in conservative places like Utah and Oklahoma and Kentucky were striking down gay marriage bans. Republican uh, candidates for office were not to be seen. They were not challenging it. If they if they got trapped, like Alison Grimes being asked whether she voted for Obama, they would usually say, yes, I deplore this judicial activism, but they didn't try to make it an issue. And that just tells you that they no longer see it as a way to win. It's clearly a bad issue for them with young voters. It's probably a bad issue with suburban and independent women. And for the base that that is still firmly against gay marriage, uh, the Republicans are going to get that vote anyway. All right. Um, John Samples, you've written recently about uh, polling data, mm -hmm. about the uh, voters' appetite for a renewed federalism. Mm -hmm. How explicit can voters be uh, when asking for the federal government to do less and states, relatively mm -hmm. speaking, to do more? Well, sometimes there's alternatives on the ballot. You have some referendums. We saw that yesterday. And, and not all of it, you have to say, is libertarian. I mean, federalism and a decentralization doesn't have to be necessarily libertarian, although the general system of breaking up power is thought to be. For example, yesterday, four states, three of whom were red state Republican states, passed minimum wage uh, referendums. Uh, so you have those alternatives sometimes. But I think Generally, this is an opening for a renewed federalism. It's been a while since that happened, maybe 20, 25 years. And uh, you see, I think, in this, a rejection of what had been a strong move toward more centralization, really after about 2004 at, at a minimum. So it's a possibility. The polling data suggests, data suggests that, you know, a lot of people like their state governments and local governments better. So uh, somewhat of more of a fragmentation of power is a possibility. Whether it will happen or not, we'll see. All right. We have a question here. This is from Guy Finley. Uh, what are the key trade issues a GOP Congress could quickly tackle in the first 100 days of a new Congress? I don't know how closely you follow that, but uh, trade is something that uh, has been a very a big sticking point for uh, President Obama and this Congress? Uh, I'm afraid you got me. This is a, a specialization that I do know that the trade authority has been an issue uh, for some time. Uh, there's a reticence about that. But with it's possible, and the presidency itself has long been uh, more of an open trade institution. So perhaps that could be something that the two parties could find agreement on. It was my understanding that, and, and uh, I, I may be wrong, but it, it strikes me that, if I recall correctly, 
the Democratic Congress was not particularly high on the idea of giving this president fast-track authority. They've been, uh, you know, Democrats, but in general, I mean, there's been a problem with fast-track authority for some time. And uh, in some ways, you like that because that is executive discretion and so on. But it is something that has really led to a lot of trade liberalization. Uh, if Obama wants to go looking for a, a kind of Republican and part of the Democratic caucus to get a trade deal, he might be able to do it. All right. Uh, Steve Jones asks, will Republicans force actual budget fights now that they fully control the purse strings? That's a good question. They don't think they won uh, picking these fights that they couldn't win before. Now, it's a little different because they could now pass a budget through the House and the Senate and send it to the president. Question is, 52, 53, maybe even 54 Republican senators, will they be able to get a majority for a serious budget there? But yes, I think they are talking about what to do about the debt limit on March 15th. Is there something you can attach to the debt limit? Um, and then what to do about a budget? The Senate hasn't been passing budgets for years now. I asked a senator a couple of years ago whether it was a problem that a colleague of his had been out of the Senate for a year with health problems. And he said, we're not taking any votes. So what's he missing? I hope that this does mean they will actually pass budgets and that they will trim them. You know, from a previous debt limit fight, they did get an agreement on a sequester. And for all the drama and heartbreak of the debt limit fight, they actually got an agreement to limit the budget. And then Paul Ryan sat down with Patty Murray and, I guess, walked away in his socks uh, because she got $19 billion more in spending than the sequester had mandated. So maybe this will give them the gumption now that they have both houses uh, to go back and say, we're going back to the sequester numbers. Well, there's a spin that's coming out of this, though, that worries me about that, which is that this is being placed as a uh, establishment Republican versus Tea Party fight that was won by the establishment Republicans, and that's why they won, did so well on Election Day. And, uh, you know, the Tea Party, for all there were mistakes made, but they forced these issues, They forced, and that's the extremism you hear talked about. They forced issues about non-incremental cuts to the federal government. If the spin comes out that, you know, those guys are crazy and they lost, uh, people like Speaker Boehner uh, will feel a freer hand, I think, on not cutting spending. All right. This is a question from Mark Coldren. What are the chances of piecemeal immigration reform? What sorts of changes might we be able to get through a Republican Congress? Well, I think we're hopeful that both parties worry about the Latino vote. It did not go as well this year for Democrats as they would have hoped, which gives them a reason to reestablish their authority on the, this issue. It also gives Republicans an understanding that the Latin, uh, Latino vote is not lost to them, and they should be competitive on immigration reform. Everybody says you have to guarantee border security first and then do something else. Well, you cannot guarantee border security. It's never going to happen. You can pass a bill that says secure borders, but it's tough to make it actually happen. So um, high-tech visas ought to be easy to get something done on that. Everybody knows that we need more good high-tech workers. Um, some form of border security we should be able to do. This whole question of path to citizenship, though, is very difficult for Republicans. But people like Jeff Flake in states where 
this issue is very divisive have been fairly successful in putting forward something that I think libertarians would agree is a positive step toward better immigration policy. Yes, but people like Jeff Flake and John McCain were putting that forward before and it wasn't going anywhere. So whether things will have changed. There is the opportunity for the House and the Senate to feel friendlier than they did in the last two years and to want to find a bill they can pass. And if they pass an immigration reform bill, it's hard to imagine the president would veto it. It is. The other thing is that this House majority is is of historic uh, significance, going back to the 1920s. But that means that there are new House members in areas of the country that didn't exist before, like in the Northeast. Uh, the Democrats and the Republicans really do have to think about 2016. I know they're perfectly aware that the uh, electorate will be different then and Hispanics will matter more. So uh, all of that will point... Uh, to some kind of deal, but whether they can get it done is, a, I think, a very open question. Our uh, friend and colleague Walter Olson asks, will Obama now repudiate his governed by executive orders strategy? And if he doesn't, how will a GOP Congress address it? Well, there's always the possibility that uh, I don't know whether he will or not. The big issue is uh, immigration, and there's some other things, too, about uh, climate change. Clearly, you've got large enough numbers in both houses that the, that uh, Congress could do something about executive orders, refuse to fund them and stop them in some way, bring suit maybe. Uh, whether, in fact, uh, that'll happen or not. Obama seems to me coming out of this in a, you know, a very weakened state, and I'm not sure what, how he views his situation in the next two years and how the party, the party certainly views him as a, a liability at this point. Um, I'm not sure he's going to be willing to take on or has good incentives to take on any kind of uh, big things like that. I think he'll get pressure from the left saying, we got nothing except a pen and a phone now. So you've got to pass uh, uh, executive orders, uh, implement executive orders. He's not running for office again, so he doesn't care. He doesn't think he can get anything through Congress. Now, President Clinton responded to this kind of loss by learning to work with the Republicans on moderated spending, moderate free trade advance, and, and, moder and welfare reform. I don't see this president doing that, and I think he fears the uh, uh, pressure from the left more than he fears the Republicans. He's certainly not the, the kind of person who likes politics and is naturally adapted politics the way Bill Clinton was. That's very true. Uh, one issue uh, I would like to get to, but first I want to uh, ask you if you have any questions for David Bowes or John Samples, please use the hashtag on Twitter, Cato Connects, and we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible over the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, on the issue of surveillance, this was not a big issue, but one of the... Uh, president's antagonist in his own party on the issue of surveillance, Mark Udall, a Democrat from Colorado, very skeptical, uh, lost. Uh, and in Arkansas, our new colleague here at the Cato Institute, Patrick Eddington, notes that uh, uh, Mr. Cotton in Arkansas won. And he says, to say that Cotton is a strong supporter of existing surveillance laws would be something of an understatement, uh, in my view, in this race, not, not, and not the Colorado contest. That may have been the most that may have been, had the most impact on surveillance reform changes 
in the Senate in the 114th Congress. His military experience in Iraq and Afghanistan lend an emotional, not necessarily factual, weight to his contention that curbing existing surveillance authorities would jeopardize American lives abroad and at home. Well, there's always the question, to what extent will Cotton be a uh, person that works on personnel, uh, on uh, actual legislation, the sort of show horse versus workhorse? Uh, or, and I suspect, you know, he, he does seem to be a man that's on a fast, at this point, on the fast track to some kind of presidential ambitions. So you might well seem not involved in uh, very specific things and having a practical effect on the Senate. This is an example, of course, of what makes elections frustrating for Republicans, or for, for libertarians. Lots of these Republicans are more free market, more anti-tax than their Democratic opponents, and so we can't help saying, oh, all right, great, you know, this big spending Mark Udall lost. But Mark Udall was, if I recall correctly, one of two senators to stand with Rand during Rand Paul's filibuster uh, against uh, drone attacks. So it is a loss for surveillance reform. Um, it's also, according to Patrick Eddington, a loss up in Alaska, where Mark Beckage had voted against Patriot Act reauthorization, but his opponent, who I believe comes out of a prosecutor's background, has a different view. So in areas like foreign policy and NSA surveillance reform, some of these Democratic losses will be bad from a libertarian point of view, but there are Tea Party-influenced, Ron Paul-influenced, Rand Paul-influenced Republicans coming in who may take up some of that slack. Remember that the Justin Amash Amendment split both parties pretty much down the middle. So there are a lot of Republicans who will work on surveillance reform. All right. This is a question from Cecilia Cervantes. What effects will this election have on the Supreme Court? Well, as long as everyone stays on the Supreme Court, I think uh, no one retires or otherwise leaves. I think the result will be this election probably makes it easier to have a good go at uh, Obamacare. Uh, politically, it says that you know Obamacare, well after it's uh, being passed, well after it going into effect, remains unpopular and has apparently has uh, real electoral results that are negative for the party that passed it. I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts can feel now that maybe there's politically a much better case for uh, acting on uh, our colleagues' effort to get the uh, courts to read Obamacare's law exactly as it was written and therefore uh, deeply damage the law itself. Yeah, I think that's right. There won't be any direct impact, but on the Obamacare issue, it might give the court a little more uh, courage to take it on. On the gay marriage cases that may come back up, uh, the court will have gotten the message that neither political party wants to fight this battle. So it's kind of up to the court, and they don't, ex and they will not expect a lot of backlash if they take it on. Now, the bigger issue is. What if a member of the Supreme Court were to die or retire over the next two years? In that case, I would think this Republican Senate is feeling its oats, and it will not be receptive to a young, determinedly liberal uh, justice. Obama will either be frustrated and not be able to appoint anybody, or he might actually sit down with Mitch McConnell or some leader of the more liberal Senate Republicans and say, where can we find a moderate liberal that I could appoint to the Supreme Court? Could happen. All right. Um, Rand Paul, and it's in full disclosure, 
this program is being uh, conducted by three people from Kentucky. So, of course, we're going to talk about both Mitch McConnell and, and uh, Rand Paul. But uh, Rand Paul has positioned himself uh, with respect to a great many uh, criminal justice issues, uh, drones, that, that sort of thing. These are issues that uh, Democrats would like to be thought of as very good on. And do you see opportunities for the parties to work together, at the very least in the Senate, on perhaps uh, mandatory minimums, uh, drones, uh, reining in any type of uh, authorities of the federal government that Democrats would like to be perceived as, as uh, a friend of the people on? I think it's possible. You know, one thing that happened uh, last night that's interesting in American history is last night is the first time in American history that two African-Americans were elected to the U.S. Senate, Tim Scott in South Carolina, both reelected, and Cory Booker in New Jersey. And Cory Booker and Rand Paul have worked together on some criminal justice reform issues. They're both rising stars in their respective parties, so I think that'll be an opportunity for them to lead. And the fact that Rand Paul may have campaigned in more states this year than anybody except Chris Christie, who was the head of the Governor's Association, suggests not only that he's an ambitious guy, but that Republican candidates wanted Rand Paul coming into their states to campaign for them, perhaps to bring in that more diverse, younger, more libertarian-leaning um, electorate, and that will give him some clout in talking to those people about helping out on these issues. It's also the question, which is, I guess, troubling, which is whether the Republican Party uh, actually can work. Uh, there's enough people that would follow Rand on these issues. Uh, and I think that's a very open question. And also whether the Democrats would be willing to abandon the administration on this. All right. Uh, Kat Murdy, our friend here at the Cato Institute, asks a, a, a question that I was meaning to get to, which is uh, Guam passed medical marijuana, D.C., Alaska, and Oregon legalized it, D.C. perhaps not as, as strongly as uh, the other states, and Florida, which on a ballot measure that required 60% approval, it failed, but a clear majority of, of voters in Florida supported uh, medical marijuana there. So what is the future of that as an issue? And I can't imagine that Congress is going to want to get in the way of D.C.'s attempt to uh, regulate itself. I could be completely wrong, but... <laughs> you could be smoking something. Yeah, you so, could be way off. No comment. But the uh, the idea that the, this is an issue that future candidates will be having to deal with, both at the state and the federal level, what do you see as the future of that issue? I think the key here is these are referendums, and referendums are indicative of a, tr a trend, certainly, particularly after a long time when those breakthroughs weren't being made. Uh, you've got 22, 23, 24 state uh, referendum-inducing states. You've, it's got to go to the legislatures at some point. It may well be that we're going to see more from on the referendum method. But uh, as long as these kinds of numbers are sustained, and the 58% number is a very strong number despite the, the failure, I think it will get to the legislature within the decade, certainly. I see politicians avoiding this issue just like gay marriage, and I think what's interesting is how this is being led not from within Washington. In 2008, President Obama said that he was against gay marriage. In 2009, he said laughingly on some, uh, you know, a, a call-in show like this, 
Um, no, I'm not interested in legalizing marijuana, you stupid kids. Um, and yet, both of those issues have moved radically during his tenure without any leadership from him. So I think that's a sign that the people can have an impact, but that the politicians are shying away from uh, these cultural issues right now. All right. Um, minimum wage uh, increases did pass in a, a few states. What, what do you make of that? There's a lot of economic ignorance around. You know, in Alaska, they uh, legalized marijuana, but they passed a higher minimum wage so that a lot of the poor workers in Alaska are going to lose their jobs and not be able to afford the marijuana that would now be legal. Um, there is a lot of economic ignorance. And if you say to people, do you want to raise the minimum wage so poor people will get paid more for the hard work they do? It's very easy to say yes. And you, you do think, what's it like to be an econ professor who has explained supply and demand for 20 years to students and you still see people voting for this? So it's an issue Democrats can use. It's an issue Republicans don't want to have to engage. All right. Uh, we're going to close with this. Uh, Mitch McConnell is now uh, most likely going to be the, the Senate's majority leader. He is not particularly libertarian. Uh, one of the critiques that uh, Ron Paul offered last night via Twitter was, when you put Republicans in charge of the Senate, we get more wars. And President Obama, of course, is uh, not shied away from using his authority as uh, commander-in-chief, uh, abusing it, arguably, to uh, engage in war-making all over the world. So where, does, where, where are we in, with respect to war and Republicans' natural desire to want to perhaps thwart this president? Uh, does that reinvigorate maybe anti-war sentiment in the House and Senate? Well, as I said earlier, my concern is that the Republicans I come across seem, the, the Bush era seemed to really transform them, the sort of realism that even Bush, George W. Bush, gave voice to in the late 90s, seemed to have entirely uh, left the party in the mid-aughts, as it were. And I thought for a while uh, that it was coming back because the population was not willing to do any more wars. So... I don't know. I think that's a, a big problem still. The consummate insider Mitch McConnell and the libertarian outsider Rand Paul have formed a real marriage of convenience. So I would hope that Rand Paul has some significant influence on Senator McConnell and that he will at least be talking to the Republican leadership about how they ought to at least constrain unauthorized and frankly illegal wars. There will be a push from people like McCain and Lindsey Graham and maybe also Tom Cotton uh, to get us involved in more wars. Yeah. I hope the Republicans will at least remember that the Constitution says we shouldn't go to war without the authorization of Congress and will at least insist on a debate. And that debate, by the way, is something they could start having in the lame duck section of Congress we're likely to get. They should not do long-term budget planning while there's still a Democratic Senate. They should talk about when we should go to war. Uh, let me just add to, uh, yes, Mitch McConnell, we know the ways in which he's not a libertarian. This is a man that I have reason to know is a, a man of enormous libertarian achievement, and I'm, of course, referring to free speech issues. This is a man that had, didn't have a particular reason to take on this, or he had partisan reasons, and then it 
I think we like to say with the help of the Cato Institute, really came to a principled stand. I do think that if he does do a deal on a Supreme Court justice, it will be a deal in which the person appointed is not going to be a person likely to overturn uh, any of the First Amendment jurisprudence, uh, including Citizens United. So, yeah, there's a bunch of things not to like about him, but he's a man that I think has achieved a lot, too. All right. Uh, so, and of course, you're referring in part to McConnell v. FEC, which was one of the big cases that helped lay the groundwork for uh, the decisions that uh, that followed. He was willing to always just say no, and that mattered. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for uh, this edition of Cato Connects. If you have any comments or thoughts, you can uh, tweet them at me uh, on Twitter, email them to me here at the Cato Institute. We'll talk to you again next time. 